Hi, welcome to this edition of Violet Sessions, a podcast for women recorded at Violet Bakery in East London. I'm Danielle Rodeutchen. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Christina Dean, founder and CEO of Redress, an environmental NGO working to reduce waste in the fashion industry. Her book, Dress with Sense, which is full of testimonials from people in the fashion industry talking about how you can dress in a more environmentally sustainable way, has just been published by Thames and Hudson. Here's Christina Dean on Violet Sessions. Hi, Christina. Hi. Welcome to Violet Sessions. Thank you so much. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. It's very nice to be sitting opposite you, my old, old friend. (laughs) Yes, I feel like we need to get this out of the way right at the beginning. So, um, Christina, or Chrissy, as I know you, uh, and I went to school together from the age of about seven yeah until 18 <laughs> we went through all the teens <laughs> together <laughs> and not just that we yeah. also lived opposite pretty much opposite yeah. each other oh i know it's not when crazy we were growing up so, so here um, we are but actually i hadn't seen you for quite a long time maybe over ten years. yeah more than that i'd say yeah we sort of lost contacts so i've been living you know on the other side so of we the need world. we've got a lot to catch up on yeah so um quick recap so what so you the last time i saw you you'd just up, finished your A-levels. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened? Gosh, okay, so I finished my A-levels. I travelled for a couple of years. I didn't know what to do with my life, so followed in my family's footsteps, which were, surprisingly, dentistry. Yes, because that's another thing I should say, that your dad used to be my dentist. <laughs> you think it all in the family. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I was a dentist. I worked for my dad for a couple of years, which was probably the, completely the wrong thing to do, because that made Why? me... Why? Well... I think working for your parents full stop is difficult and particularly in a job that ultimately I hated he loved was enough to just like crack the system so I gave up dentistry and I retrained as a journalist in London um, writing about all sorts of topics from you know I don't know current affairs to my sex life actually one of my best articles you'll like this one was um, how to spice up your sex life when you were nine months pregnant, which my husband really enjoyed. Oh, so yeah. I was testing all this pre- pregnancy lingerie and sensual oils and stuff. Anyway, my dad read that article. That was quite embarrassing. <laughs> but anyway, that was beside the point. So I moved out to Asia. Is that even possible to have a, a spicy yeah. sex life when you're nine yeah. months pregnant? It really seriously is, actually. I feel it, like I need yeah. to ask... B, who's sitting behind us, pretend you maybe. No, um, no so I did a striptease. This is way too much of a because I know you so well. Easy. No, I did a striptease when I was nine months pregnant. It was actually quite nice. I think he appreciated the, the, the hard effort that I put That's into it. That's good to know. I definitely yeah. would not have been up for doing a striptease <laughs> nine months pregnant. Anyway, so there you go. So I, I do much more serious things than striptease, though, you know. Uh, <laughs> So I moved out to Hong Kong with my family because we just wanted to have an adventure. That was about 12 so years. So your family, that was your... My own. You, you were me- married then? Yeah. So I've got uh, three kids now. Moved out there. We wanted to raise our kids somewhere else because I was raised... Before I met you when we were seven, I was actually raised in Johannesburg. And I think growing up in another culture is brilliant thing to do. And I really wanted to replicate that with my own children. So off we went to Hong Kong. Which is, you know, a crazy Asian capital city, um, very vibrant. It's a brilliant place, but it's also very, very polluted. Um, not just the air, because we breathe the air of China, but also the water. And just the whole, the whole setup of Hong Kong is inextricably, inextricably linked to China, because we're on the doorstep of China. And basically, I travelled a huge amount around Asia. Back then, actually, I was still a qualified dentist, 
And I was going off to prisons and slums and, you know, street kids and communities to pull people's teeth out on homeless people, etc., etc. And I really kind of saw just the grime and the grit of Asia. And it, it is very grimy and gritty. Anyway, coming back to the pollution, um, again, travelled a lot in China. And I think if you've, if you've seen these remote, very, very polluted places, it basically rattles your cage big time. So I started to write a lot about it. And it was through writing about all of these topics that I, um, I discovered how bad the fashion and textile industry is, actually, which is really what my main job is when I'm not strip-teasing. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> you know, I run <laughs> I, um, I started an NGO trying to reduce waste in the fashion industry because China's been, pollu- been producing the clothes for the world. Yes, China's lost a lot of its industry over the last five-ish years to Southeast Asia and to other cheaper manufacturing places. But essentially, China has been creating clothes and textiles and... It's quite apparent because if you just look at the amount of pollution that they've got, 61% of their groundwater is classified as being unfit for human touch. And I think um, it was just something that just strikes me as being absolutely criminal, that the production for the world is having such a devastating effect on local poor people in China. And that's really why I do what I do now. So you founded Redress, yeah. that's the name of the yeah. company. So you founded that, well, not a company, it's, it's a, a NG- charity. Yeah, charity, yeah. in 2007. Mm. Um, and that's founded in Hong Kong. Yes. Um, and t- tell me a bit about exactly how it works. Okay, so <clears throat> Redress, we're, we're trying to reduce waste in the fashion industry. And so in order to do that, we're sort of taking... I hate the word educational because sometimes it sends me to sleep, but essentially we're an educational NGO helping the supply chain and consumers to make better clothes that are less wasteful. Um, So in order to attack the supply chain, for example, a lot of our work is educating emerging fashion designers. What I discovered at Redress after many, many years is basically that fashion designers haven't got a clue. You know, they can be beautifully creative, they can have all the innovation and the, the passion to change, but ultimately a lot of them don't actually know how to make clothes that are... Uh, so is the issue then at, at sort of education, at training level, so when fashion designers are at yeah. college? Yeah, that's one of our programmes. Right. We have many, many different projects, but so, for example, one of them is our educational um, sustainable fashion design competition, competition called the EcoChic Design Award. And of the many um, educational programs that we do, we go into universities and we provide lectures for their students. So, for example, we've got 90 university partners around the world. um, And through them, we pass our educational materials. We've also got a teacher training pack. So essentially, we've written a... I won't call it a curriculum because that's not strictly truthful. It's a teacher training pack that we're giving, particularly to Asian universities. Because you've got to think, Asia's got a massive emerging economy. You know, there's a lot of more people coming into the middle classes. Um, there's loads more universities being established. And there's a lot more uh, people who are going into fashion. These universities... I'm afraid, just haven't got a clue in terms of how to provide sustainable fashion education. So that's just one little example. Of so some what do you think that um, places like, I mean, I don't know, I'm thinking of the ones in London, like Central St. Martins yeah. or London College of Fashion, what should they be doing to address that? Well, they are already the, kind of the global leaders, those two examples, in terms of sustainability. So, for example, Dillis Williams runs the Centre for <laughs> Sustainable Fashion at London College of Fashion. And... I would say that these universities, um, those two that you've given examples, 
what is their responsibility? Is that the question? Well, it's absolutely crucial. The fashion industry is at a massive, massive crisis point, and I could talk for hours on why that is, but essentially the crisis is that the fashion industry needs natural resources, and we're running out of natural resources. There's more competition between food and fashion, for example. So if you look at young people, whether they are fashion designers or whether they're going into medicine or whatever... It is the responsibility of universities to educate them to be prepared for the world that they're coming into. So should they be hiring more staff that are trained in that kind of area? And should they offer courses that are based around well, environmental issues? Definitely. I mean, the more, the more forward-thinking universities are certainly um, getting more skilled staff in sustainability. One of the problems in fashion is that the issue of sustainability is unfortunately quite a new thing. It's really after the advent of fast fashion say let's just say roughly 20 years ago if we say roughly 15 to 10 years ago sustainability became a massive crisis issue because the 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 model for fashion had actually changed so the reason i say that is that sustainable fashion and these such and such issues is quite new universities struggle to keep up with all these big things that happen in fashion and things you know like digital has transformed fashion and the sort of e-com has transformed fashion so universities have to be very nimble in terms of what they're teaching. When it comes to, st- to sustainable education at university, it's just diabolically behind. When, and it's critical that these young students know what they're talking about. So, for example, a lot of these universities actually make it mandatory for their students to apply to our competition, for an example, because they understand that they need to provide it, but they just can't. The other thing that we've seen at university level, and this is no surprise, is how overwhelmed the curriculums are. Um, so there's no space in curriculums to start adding new content. That's just another barrier. Overwhelmed in what way? The curriculums are full. Where, where can you find time in a curriculum to basically introduce a new core syllabus or something? Because all of the courses are full. I don't mean full in terms of the number of participants. I mean in the materials that need to be taught. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting what you were saying about fast fashion. So... When you say the ad, you know the advent of fast fashion, which yeah. I don't know when we're saying when that it sort started, of happens, yeah. but um, say late nineties, yeah. sort of you bec- one became really aware of it. Then maybe yeah. I don't know. Um, how has that impacted on what you're working on? Well, I think it's quite fundamental. I mean, the word fast fashion obviously conjures up all this sort of fast-produced, cheaply-produced, high-volume goods, and that was only made possible by globalisation when supply chains moved from the more lucrative markets of where the consumers are, i.e. the West, to where the cheap labour is, i.e. Asia. Um, so because of the, the, the moving of these supply chains, the labour costs and material costs have got much cheaper. Of course, the products got much cheaper, and of course... Mm. When, peop- when things are cheap, what do you think people do? They just buy more Of course, more and I remember, you know, when Primark opened um, in London and you could go and buy a skirt that was £4. Um, but what do you say to people who are not very wealthy um, and who felt like they should have access to fashionable clothing? Yeah, well, I think everyone should... I think... Okay, the issue of cost is always a massive stumbling block in terms of sustainability, whether you're talking about like organic food or better produced clothes. I think for me, what kind of gets me on cost is this. If you look at the last 100 years and you looked at what people uh, are spending on clothes, we've come down from 17% of our annual expenditure that goes onto clothing 100 years ago to 3% right now. 
The reason for that, obviously, is clothes have got become much, much cheaper. But even though they're much cheaper, people buy much, much more. Have I just taken your coffee? Yeah, yeah I was wondering what you're doing. <laughs> I'm just like, having a big gulp of my picked, coffee. Just picked up your coffee and took a gulp. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is... I always do that. People just... People... I, I hate to say this, and please forgive me for this in advance, because I don't want to make people angry, but I think people could actually buy fewer clothes and they could even spend a little bit more on them. People overbuy clothes, and so if you look at... We've, we're buying 400% more clothes than we did um, a couple of decades ago, 10 years ago. I forget mm-hmm. the exact stat. Point being, I don't think... Someone who's very price-sensitive... I still think that they could save up a little bit more, spend a little bit more and buy a little bit less and still look great and have the sort of democratisation to fashion that they want. But in a world that is so hyper-sped up right now due to um, digital, um, what do you say to uh, online magazines, um, about fashion fuel, designers? demand, yeah. you say. Well, and you say there's a place to educate, you know, we have a, you have a job to educate designers. Um, what about these educating. magazines or the people that are fueling the, the demand for all this new well, look, stuff? I mean, there's, that's kind of, for me, perhaps two answers, because there's the issue of the business of fashion, which is the digital and sales and marketing and making fashion seem so beautifully glamorized. And I, I think sometimes the digital world makes fashion seem, seem so cellophane wrapped i'd say it's, it's so it's it actually for me makes fashion feel quite boring for me so that industry is going to be very hard to crack because they they are, it's driven by money and sales and click throughs and purchases so that's very difficult to tell people to stop pushing fashion but i think in terms of reaching consumers that's the real challenge that we actually face, because I think after 10 years of running Redress and for the first five, six, seven years, I was really banging at brands and, re- and uh, retailers and industry and suppliers and designers going, yeah, you should make this better. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of realized that actually it's completely down to the consumer mm-hmm. as well, hand in hand. So coming back to the consumer, how do we convince them to partake in a more ethical fashion industry? That's really the deep question that we're trying to resolve. And I don't have a I don't have an exact gorgeous answer for it, but I would say for me, fashion um, fashion is something that's so much more than just consumption. It's very much about who we are, what our values are, you know, who, how we want to portray ourselves to the world. And I fundamentally believe that people are good. And I think that people understand the negative impacts that can come from some parts of their consumption that they would prefer. Yeah, you're nodding, but no, smiling. Do you believe? I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I just was nodding that you said you believe people are good, and yeah. that's always nice to hear. But um, what about? But you don't agree. Uh, no, I, don't. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I do agree. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to ask you was yeah. um, about the luxury fashion industry because yeah. we've spoken about fast fashion, um, and often luxury fashion, they t- people who work in luxury tend to hold themselves up as. Hmm. On a slightly higher pedestal Definitely. than fast fashion because yeah. they say, "Oh, look, our." Products are made in um, factories where people are paid a decent wage mm-hmm. um, using high-quality fabrics. Do you think that's true? Do you think they are exempt from accusations? Definitely not. Right. Yeah, no, I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about luxury brands because I think they are, as you say, they're up there on a shiny pedestal up there in the clouds with a durable product which is masterfully made with, you know, artisans and all of that. And a lot of that is true. But I think one fundamentally, luxury brands will say we have a timeless product that you can pass from generation to generation, etc. Um, and it's and it's 
durably made, therefore, therefore it, it is sustainable. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But luxury brands have got bigger margins and they should be the ones, in my mind, that are championing a truly much more ethical product. Because obviously, if you're the CEO of a fast fashion brand, you've got razor thin margins on your profit. So it is actually quite difficult to innovate, whether you're paying better wages or whether you're getting a more sustainable material. But if you're a luxury brand, you've got a bigger margin and actually you've got a much bigger responsibility to do something more valuable. Aren't there quite a few luxury brands who are folding in environmental programs into their business plan i know i read something about caring is that right Um, yeah are there any brands you'd like to call out here as doing something good yeah i mean i think caring group as a as a whole they're one of the most forthcoming in terms of what they talk about um you know stella mccartney obviously being one of their brands that's the most famously known for her her ethics and her values um but all of the group all of the companies in the caring group are really good I'll say Mm. I think also the thing you've got to think about sustainability is it's not just about like paying your staff a bit more or it's not just about like sourcing some organic fabric it's really about risk management so if you're a big caring group and you can look at sustainability as an both an opportunity and as a risk management then you can actually push it into businesses and it becomes more of a business decision and you know to give you an example if you're a company and you haven't thought about the risk of how you're going to source fibres in the future, then you're not actually running a sustainable business, as just one small Mm. example. Mm. Are there any companies that you want to call out for being really bad with their environmental track record? Unfortunately, there are so many bad ones. Which ones bring to mind? Uh, Or who would you like to go and talk to? I'll phrase it in a different way. Is, Is there somebody that you'd really like to go and talk to about it and say, look, this is how you could improve? You know, there are so many. I don't. I, it's not that I want to be um, polite and not naming anybody, but there are. I don't know where to start. The list is almost all of the big brands. I mean, I was with Target last week because mm. we're going to be hopefully doing some workshops with them. And you know, Target obviously is not known for its high quality, sort of high value products. Um, and even though they may not have the best reputation. They are absolutely trying to do something about it. Like, Forever 21 gets a real hammering as well. Um, I would love to go and talk to them about it. And fundamentally, the reason for that, I take a personal view. I'm not one of these people that goes around naming and shaming and bitching and moaning. I actually strongly believe that a lot of these brands do want to implement positive changes if it's going to affect their bottom line. So I don't have a great answer for you there in terms of which ones in particular. Mm because there's so many brands out there that need it. Mm. Yeah. What about um, fur? I'm interested to know your yeah. views on that. Um, so, especially in the UK, I think, um, fashion brands often take pride in the fact they don't sell real fur. Mm. Um, and fake fur has always been associated with being more environmentally friendly. Mm. And then more recently, people stood up and said, well, actually, Is the it? chemicals that are yeah. used, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then recently, um, you know the brand... Vetement, mm-hmm. which is like you know one of the trendiest um, fashion labels around at the moment, um, and I think they put like its designer Demna put on the catwalk a model wearing a vintage fur coat. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering what your thoughts are with regards to fur uh, or vintage fur versus fake fur. Fake if fur. you're fur, fake, say you really want to wear a fur jacket yeah. and you're going, and you have a choice of fake yeah. fur or vintage, vintage fur, which one should or you go with? You 
If it was me personally, I would go vintage because, I, I mean, I'm very, very pro any using resources that have already been processed and are already in the market. We should be using such resources. Um, and actually, you know, if you were an Eskimo, a fur coat would actually do you good. I mean, if you're in Knightsbridge, you're not an Eskimo. But still, a lot of people like fur because it functions very well against the cold. So um, on the ethics of it, I would go vintage um, because... The resource is already there because the product functions against the cold. And because if you create a fake fur um, coat in order to satisfy the demand for the look of fur, you're actually in- incurring quite an environmental cost because typically they're going to be synthetic fibres with, you know, all so these... So those high street brands who put a ton of um, fake fur on the yeah. shelves, that, like last winter, I think it was a massive... Mm-hmm. After Shrimps did it, set a mm-hmm. huge trend for... Um, fake fur coats. Actually, she's probably quite a good example, the mm. shrimp's label. Mm. Um, so that's, they were sort of trumpeting about how... It was better. Yeah. So you don't think that's true? Better, it depends on what. It depends if you're talking on animal welfare, though, or environmental impact. Because obviously, once you start talking about um, animal welfare, then you've basically got an ethical hellhole to get yourself through. Mm. Because... Um, the animal welfare, depending on where the fur comes from, is incredibly questionable. I mean, you can have some fur. Like, for example, and I'm not a fur expert, but in uh, in Australia or New Zealand, the WWF there promote possum fur Mm. because possum there is a pest and it's actually destroying the biodiversity Mm -hmm. there. So WWF actually want women to wear... So it comes back again to this sort of being informed and education. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, yeah, and... What? So I, I was just going to say, so because it seems you know your message very much is about education and um, learning more about what you're putting on your body. Um, so what the for, for an average consumer yeah. and somebody who is interested in fashion but wants to is is ethically or environmentally minded. Yeah. What? Where what, should they go? Are there what websites? should they do? Yeah. Yes. What should they read? Um, their websites or their social media accounts to follow? Yeah. What do okay, you suggest? Well, which ones do I follow? I mean, I'm obviously a bit of pro of redress because of the book that we've written. Because it's your company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. um, I don't think that there's one place to get it all, I'm afraid. Um, mm. But I would just say, f- forget where you follow to start with. I would say, number one, if I could like turn the light on in people's minds, I would say don't become a fashion consumer, become a fashion citizen. Because the issue of uh, this word consume... It's actually sort of something rather ugly because you consume food because you destroy it through the use. And I think we... I just hate being called a fashion consumer. I use the word myself because everybody knows what it means, but mm. I actually think it's really degrading. What's a fashion citizen? What does that mean, though? It means that you actually partake in fashion in a much more personal, stylish, ethical, sustainable, value-driven. And I don't mean, like, low price. I mean your own values. And you basically curate clothes that reflect who you are. And you enjoy that as part of your sort of wellness, your inner development. Like, so many people are searching in life for, you know... I don't know what it is. We're all searching. You know, people are going on wellness course. They're doing yoga. They're going crazy on green detox. You know, they're meditating every bloody minute of the day. We're all in this mind, mind, what do you call it? Mind. Mindfulness. Yeah, that's the one. And for me, actually, I mean, are you? I'm right in that mindfulness zone. (laughs) Trying to be, but failing most of the time. But I actually think that the closet needs to be extended into that mindfulness. So what do, how do you educate yourself about what's happening in the world of environmental fashion, good and bad? What do you read? Um, I read the business of fashion. 
But okay. that's much more focused on obviously the business and the brands and who's yeah. doing what. But for consumers, um, citizens. <laughs> oh, no, I'm never going to use that word again. For fashion citizens. I need to have a look at the resources. So, well, in our, this in is, our, maybe this is a good good time to talk about your book. Yeah, bring let's it go in. For it. So, you've yeah. picked up your book, which is called Dress with, with Sense. Sense. Yes, and it's just been published by Thames and Hudson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you why we wrote this book, and then I still need to give you some good yeah. resources to follow. Resources. Got loads here. I mean, obviously, you can buy the book to Definitely. find out the resource, but I would like to hear from you as well. It'd be great to get your suggestions. Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to quickly tell you why I wrote the book yeah. because you know you know me since I was seven. I've never been a hardened fashionista. You were always the coolest girl at school. Really? Yeah, I don't think I was. No, you were. I was always in your wake, <laughs> quivering that behind is Danielle so not true, by the way. <laughs> Um, and so I've never been a really active fashion loving person who follows blogs. I just not like that. But I want to tell you why I wrote the book because a few years ago I dedicated this crazy year to only wearing other people's discarded clothes. So every day I scavenged around different sources and clothing warehouses. Was this in Hong Kong? Yeah, I also did it in London um, to get my clothes. So everything that I wore had been chucked away by somebody else. So you were scavenging through people's bins. I have done that. Uh, Yep. And I used to be a big dumpster diver too, but uh, (laughs) yeah, that's another story. Anyway, I wore people's thrown away clothes for one year. And what I discovered was that people throw their clothes away. Honestly, I've got no idea why, because I was at balls. I was at the ski slopes. I was on the beaches. I just went everywhere in a normal, you know, jam-packed year of Chrissy Bruin or Chrissy Dean or Christina Dean or whatever all my combination of names are and I discovered um, how what's the word it's it's how foolish we are because we go out buying new clothes and then we chuck them away really way too too early so my 365 challenge was a massive eye-opener, and that's really why I wrote this book, which is a practical guide to having a more conscious closet. And it's really... So it's for anyone who wants to be... To, to be to more dress. sustainable yeah, in their more wardrobe. aware of what's going on, yeah. So, so, for example, the book's divided into how to buy clothes, how to wear clothes, how to care for them, and how to dispose of them. Now, you know, the thing about... I can't bear the word sustainable fashion. It makes me kind of want to be sick, because it's just... I'm just... It's overused so often... So this book is about a conscious closet and, you know, things like how you store your shoes, you know, how you wash your clothes, how you iron them, what detergents that you use, how you dispose of your clothes. It's all little tricks that ultimately keep you with your clothes for longer. The only way we're truly going to solve much of the sustainability kind of crisis that we have in the fashion industry is to buy better quality clothes and keep them for longer and dispose of them more sustainably. I think another thing that I like about this book, and um, I'm I'm definitely going to look at it more, is or keep it on my shelf, is um, it has got really handy tips, Mm -hmm. I think, that are really helpful. And it isn't too... It's not dry. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you've spoken to some really cool, inspiring people who would normally be in those um, publications that we were talking about or who might normally be associated with fueling the need for more fashion. But then Mm -hmm. you've got people like Amber Valletta, who's like a seasoned supermodel, who I love, Giving yeah. her tips, um, Susie Bubble. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, people who... Also, Castro, Safia Mini, yeah. Kate, Katie Jones. Um, so yeah. people whose opinions, you, you know, you really want to know about and who actually are genuinely perceived as yeah. being right in the fashion industry and respected by the yeah. whole industry. I mean, talking of... Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what... We talked about the sort of democracy of fashion or you said, you know, how can people 
Fashion should be enjoyed by everybody, but sustainable or having a more conscious closet is also for everybody. And that's why the book highlights tips from fashion bloggers, stylists, fashion buyers, How did editors. You get hold of them all. Um, you know what? Pe- like I said, people are good. And do you pe- think though it's because they? It's. Do you think it's because it's the start of a sea change? Definitely. I mean, it's not the start. I think it's been going on for a lot longer, but it's really entering the much more mainstream mindset now because, you know, kind of green fashion, yuck, what the hell's that? But green fashion was what it was called 15 years ago. But now sustainable fashion, ethical fashion, it's very, very topical. So how do we get them? We just contact them. And the beauty of it is that people who love fashion are actually quite into a conscious closet because if you take... um, if you take, for example, Sarah Harris, um, Vogue, what is she, fashion editor, director? Fashion, yeah, fa- one of the fashion yeah. features, I think. Yeah. So she's in British there Vogue. because, yeah, um, because she has obviously got a pretty extensive wardrobe and she also has probably quite an expensive wardrobe and she is pretty active in pushing for more sustainable dry cleaners so that are using yes, less pollution. Yes, she wrote a big piece in Vogue exactly. about it that I so read, that, which was really good, actually. But that, I was really shocked at all the chemicals and yeah. used in dry cleaning. So that's my point. F- conscious closets can be for everybody, even if you're a high con- if you buy a lot of clothes, you can still dispose of them in a more sustainable way and take care of them better. So it shouldn't be something that's unachievable for normal people like me and you. Mm. Okay, I've got to sort of just see what blogs that we like. I'm, well, Ecoter is a good blog for just covering new brands what they're up to um oh yeah i love trashes for tossers oh yeah yeah i mean it's a terrible name but she's my friend um lauren springer she became so her blog is just great for more sustainable living she's famous because she only created one jar of trash over one whole year hence the trashes for tossers Mm. name did you remember her from new york she's really great um and actually i think diy is something I think is super, super cool. When I was going down the bins getting some rubbish old clothes out... <laughs> down di- the bins? <laughs> going down the bins, darling. Um, I used to get some really horrific clothes out of the bins, as you can imagine, but through DIY, some of my best clothes... You know, I've, I've actually got some of my best clothes. So my friend Geneva van der Zeel, she's a um, DIY blogger, and I would say her blog is brilliant just because you can see transformation through DIY. So those would be my, my favourites, I think. Okay. Yeah. And what about, I want to know, tell, tell me about what you're wearing today. I'm interested I'm in, in second, the kind of stuff you yeah, wear. Yeah, I'm second I like your blouse. Thank you so much, yeah. I, so five years ago, I committed never to buying any new clothes ever again, which I've only, except my knickers and my shoes. I'm, Why knickers and shoes? Because if you find shoes are quite difficult to buy in the second-hand market, because often in my experience down the bin, again, was that if you find nice clothes in the bin, it's because they're really uncomfortable, and that's why someone's got rid of them. So I've learned the hard way through a lot of blisters that it's quite hard to buy second-hand shoes. And knickers, um, you know, you can actually find a lot of new knickers in recycling centres. Really? Yeah, I know. Some nice, <laughs> nice pants down there. But it's just, you know, you've got to draw the line, and my pants yeah. are the line, so yeah. <laughs> I keep okay. new pants. So basically... For five years, I haven't bought any new clothes, so I only buy... Where do you buy your pants? I don't really buy any pants. I've got so many. Actually, I do know. <laughs> I've got a lot of pants, but actually they come from Marks and Spencer's, my oh, granny pants. Okay. But my husband, you know, he's the annoying one because he's, you know, every Valentine's Day, every... Because he can't buy me clothes, so he just buys me <laughs> underwear. Oh. I feel like, you know, all this underwear that I never wear. But So, anyway. and so everything else, so your blouse and your trousers It's all secondhand. Even my shoes are secondhand today, no blisters. So you don't mind... 
and is that charity shops? Or, yeah. yeah, charity shops or online. So once it's second hand, you don't. You're not too fussed about the label, or do you, no. are you still mindful of where it came from? No, before, before you see that's the beauty. It came second hand. No, I mean for me, it's very different. Well, for me, anything that's second hand is good for me because the resources are already there. The impacts are already been been created. So I want to keep it in the fashion loop for longer. That's my ethical barometer. Second hand done. I also, by the way, buy a lot of. Oh, I don't buy a lot of clothes. I buy clothes online from designer secondhand shops online which ones my favorite it's all hong kong based but my favorite one is the hula.com it's just great i mean i know the girl that runs it and it's all fantastic stuff so this i i bought from her last okay. week okay oh, cool yeah okay and um, actually so i just wanted to um well i think it's nearly the end of our time but um do you still swim do you remember yeah. so when you when I was at school with you? I suddenly remember you used to you were yeah. like a champion swimmer. You were yeah. like the top swimmer in our in the UK for your yeah. age group or something. Yeah. And you used to go every morning before school. Yes, I did. And um, practice swimming. And I used to always come into school with wet hair. Yes, yeah, smelling of a chlorine, chlorine. bucket. Um, yeah, I did used to be a swimmer. You're right. It was a long time ago. I haven't really swum competitively for a while I've done a lot of open water racing but just for fun to keep my bum in check Mm. and if anything what's really strange is that because I was a swimmer in my teens and my youth my mom used to swim and train whilst I was training and she is still in the uh, world championships so I gave up and she's there training how what kind of um what did it instill in you doing that every day? Determination. Do you still think, did that yeah, help you? Definitely. Your, yeah. yeah, I think um, I was asked this a while ago by like a women's network. What, like, what do you need? If you want to start an organisation, like, what do you actually need? Um, and I was actually thinking, what is it? It's determination and you need to be able to go through the pain barrier. And I know I've been through the pain barrier. Mm, what was the pain barrier with redress? I've, I go through them all the time. Yeah, running, running an organisation. Regular I, pain. Yeah. <laughs> I think you need to know how far you can be pushed. And I think sport is a great way to push yourself yeah. through mentally because, you know, what is it? Life is all a mental game. And I think if you can push your body through the brink of feeling like, mm. you know. So what's on the agenda next for Redress? Have you got ambitions for it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my ambitions is just to keep it going because actually, mm. you know, we're 10 years in. We've got um, a lot of challenges um but one such way that i want you know i want to be dead one day and i want me dressed <laughs> to be there you know i don't want to mm-hmm. like you know start up scene you can start up an organization first couple of years yeah you can sweat your way through that 10 years you're in a different phase of growth still a startup but what i want is for redress to be here in 100 years in order to do that that's that's actually challenging because i'm there's a whole challenge of moving beyond a founder in an organization mm-hmm. so that's what we're trying to do the second one such way to achieve that is um we started a for-profit fashion brand an upcycled fashion brand in order to fundraise for redress the charity because fundraising i don't care what sector of the world you're in fundraising is number one it just is criminally horrible yeah yeah new funds yeah all right and finally so claire my usual co-host and owner of violet is normally here and she normally asks our interviewees Mm -hmm. what their favorite cake is so that she Mm. can then go and bake it for you lovely Um, so what's your favorite cake my favorite cake is cinnamon bum Mm, definitely yum. yum swirly it's got a bit of a kick <laughs> nice and sweet um and Love also it. i mary, noticed mary hers, berry description yeah hers also it's like if you had a very big mouth you could probably stuff it in one i quite like that about it <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much chris that no, was really, really fun to have you on no it's been fun thanks good luck with the book yeah thank you that was christina dean on violet sessions 
I'm Danielle Redeutschen, and on behalf of me and my co-host Claire Patak, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Violet Sessions and leave comments and follow us. We are on Instagram as at Violet Sessions and the show is a co-production of In Talks With and Wargy Productions. See you soon. Bye.